is that sepsis is an elusive entity to define and therefore be humble. Um, be prepared to second-guess your initial impression and don't be ashamed of that, be proud of that. Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we go to Boston to discuss measuring sepsis. Uh, before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So, my name is Michael Quampus. I'm an infectious disease physician at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. I also serve as the hospital epidemiologist and am a professor of population medicine at Harvard Medical School. Great. And um, today we're going to be talking about measuring sepsis. Um, and I'm going to start off by asking you why do we need to measure it? Well, I think that there's an accurate perception. Uh, that sepsis is a major public health problem. There are a lot of cases associated with very high morbidity and mortality. And therefore, as a society, it compels us to try to be able to uh, to prevent it and to improve the care of it when it does occur. We want to have any kind of sense if we're making any manner of progress, both at the society level and individual hospital levels, we have to be able to measure it. And again, that's both in terms of incidence and in terms of outcomes. Can you give us a bit of a background as to um, how we currently measure sepsis incidence and mortality and how it's changed over the years? Yeah. Well, one of our challenges is that we have no systematic strategy right now for the measurement of sepsis incidence or, or outcomes. What we rely upon instead is periodic assessments by individual investigators and sometimes public health agencies to try to get a sense of sepsis burden and change over time. There are two major strategies for assessing that. One is using uh, claims codes, claims data sets, basically the diagnosis codes that are produced by uh, clinicians or by hospitals after caring for a patient. And if one analyzes those data sets, one can try to get a sense of the incidence of sepsis and uh, looking at outcomes to determine uh, mortality rates. The other strategy is used as clinical registries. So if a hospital uh, creates a prospective registry of every patient with whom they diagnose with, uh, with sepsis, it keeps data about that patient. That's another way you can assess things over time. Those are the two major methods right now. Um, there are, and if you look at, at uh, the studies published using those two methodologies, they tend to provide two big messages. One is that they give the sense that sepsis rates have been increasing over time. In some cases, some studies suggesting quite dramatic increases, meaning many-fold increases over time. And likewise, that sepsis mortality rates have been decreasing a bit of a, a mixed bag message over here that there's more cases, but patients are doing uh, are doing better. The problem with both those methodologies, both claims data and with um, with registries, is that they're very susceptible to uh, changes in sepsis awareness that can lead to ascertainment bias. In other words, if sepsis is very much on our minds, as it increasingly is, due to public health. Um, uh, regulations due to uh, mandates from regulatory agencies due to the smashing success of the surviving sepsis campaign, there's much, much more awareness about sepsis, much more talk about sepsis, and therefore much more of a readiness to diagnose sepsis. The same patient seen 10 years ago 
really bad pneumonia or urinary tract infection. Ten years ago, it was probably called a really bad pneumonia or urinary tract infection. There's a good chance today that that same patient will be labeled as having sepsis or septic shock, and that'll be the official diagnosis that'll that'll lead in their uh, their medical record, their registry. Um, and that's a real problem in terms of trying to assess trends over time in sepsis incidence and outcomes, because if we are becoming more perceptive at doing a better job of labeling people as sepsis, um, the rise in sepsis that we see might be due to simply more, labeling more people as having sepsis rather than a true increase in sepsis itself. Likewise, if if we're saying that we're getting doing a better job over time of labeling increasingly uh, subtle cases as sepsis, which are correct, correct labelings, um, but nonetheless we are including patients who are slightly less ill now compared to who we used to call sepsis in the old days, then we won't be surprised to see if the septic population today has a low mortality rate compared to a septic population 10 years ago. Again, think back in your mind to the kinds of patients who we called septic or gave that label 10, 15 years ago. They tend to be people who are critically ill multiple presses, bacteremia, literally on death's door. That was the population whom we used to label sepsis. Now we have a much more nuanced, I think complete, sense of who that population is, but it includes other people other than those who are presenting to us as extremists. And that then is leading to potentially accounting for the observed increase in sepsis incidence and the perceived decrease in sepsis mortality. Well, you've given us a really great background. Um, so how did you address that problem? Uh, you mentioned the limitations um, of using uh, registries or claims data. Um, how did you address this problem uh, with big databases? Well, thanks for asking. So first of all, let me first say that that, that um, the work I'm going to be describing today is not uh, not my work, but really the work of uh, a number of colleagues uh, along with me. And the real leader for this work has been my colleague, Dr. Chona Ree, who's really taken the the heavy lifting side, the, the leadership in the tackling this problem. So I'm going to be describing his work, but credit really is due to him. Um, what uh, what 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 uh, Dr. Ree and I um, reasoned was that in this day and age, there's no reason why we need to be counting sepsis cases using uh, claims data or retrospective diagnoses. Really, what we ought to be able to be doing in this day and age is using the direct clinical data that comes from the patients themselves to determine who does and does not have sepsis. And if we take the framework of um, sepsis as being defined as somebody with infection that's associated with organ dysfunction and bad outcomes, we can try to find the markers of those conditions inside the electronic health record and actually use patients' direct clinical data rather than the diagnoses that they were assigned. And that way we cut out the need to depend upon doctor's recognition or doctor's labeling or hospital's diagnoses, but rather can look directly at what the patient himself was, was presenting with and what the doctor was thinking at the time. And so we said, using electronic clinical data, you can work out those who have a probable infection. And we define that as individuals in whom there was a decision to draw blood cultures, a decision to initiate antibiotics, and decision to continue antibiotics for at least four days. And we could define organ dysfunction based upon people's clinical and, uh, and, uh, and pharmacological parameters. So, acute renal failures arise in creatinine, thrombocytopenias drop in platelets, uh, hepatic dysfunctions arise in bilirubin, um, hypotension is, is the initiation of vasopressors, so on and so forth. 
And that way we can be very objective in determining who has like who had uh, high suspicion of infection and who very likely had organ dysfunction. And so what we did is we uh, joined with a number of collaborators from, collaborators from around the country to try to access some longitudinal electronic health record data from very large populations. And we were able to get electronic health record data from 409 hospitals nationwide, a mix of community hospitals, academic hospitals, veterans affairs hospitals, and applied these electronic definitions to the determination of, uh, of, of possible sepsis. And using the methodology, we were able to estimate that in the year 2014, that about 6% of hospitalized patients uh, were admitted with, uh, with sepsis. And in a subset of those hospitals, we were able to, access to, uh, to estimate historical trends. And between the years of 2009 and 2014, uh, when we measured sepsis incidence, we found, in fact, that results have been stable, that the incidence has really not changed at all over this six-year period. Likewise, when we measured sepsis outcomes, particularly mortality, we found something very interesting, which is that if you looked at hospital mortality alone, there was a decrease in hospital mortality over that uh, time period, 2009 to 2014. However, we saw a parallel increase in the number of patients that are being discharged to hospice. If you look at the combined outcome of death in hospital or discharge to hospice, we found no change in the instance of that combined outcome, 2009 to 2014. So that's rather important data. I mean, these are basically the, your findings are in contrast to what was found in the claims data and the registries. What uh, are the implications of these findings? So let me first just, just echo what you say. This was in contrast to what the claims data and the registries were, uh, have been reporting. Uh, we did actually do the claims-based analysis of the same 409 hospitals that we included inside of our study and uh, indeed confirmed that on their claims-based data, it did suggest a rise in sepsis incidence and a decrease in sepsis mortality. Um, and so we were able to show within the same hospitals this discrepancy between what claims data was suggesting compared to what electronic health record data is suggesting. I think the number of implications. Uh, first of all, for the purposes of uh, public health surveillance, and for hospital internally quality monitoring, if you want to know what's happening to your sepsis incidence and outcomes, the, this really suggests to me that if you look at doing a longitudinal analysis, um, you, would, you would be unwise to be using claims data because of this risk of change in ascertainment leading to, to biased estimates. And it's a real problem for temporal analyses. Uh, the other implication is that, uh, from a public health point of view, it suggests that perhaps our success in trying to prevent sepsis and trying to do a better job of treating sepsis has stalled. Um, of course, our, our, our study said nothing about what's happened prior to 2009, so it might be that before then that, uh, that, that, that mortality rates were higher and we have made some impact. But certainly over the more recent period, uh, we were not able to see any kind of, of change. So I think that says to us as a public health community and as a critical care community that we have to redouble our efforts to try to improve sepsis care. And um, the challenge, of course, is knowing exactly what that incorporates and whether that requires the development of novel diagnostics, novel therapeutics, or simply better implementation pathways of, uh, of, of some of the strategies we already have. I think those are unknown questions at this point. Great. I want to dive a little bit into the methodology that you use. Um, 
some uh, every method that we use has its limitations. I was, I was hoping you could describe some of the limitations of analyzing uh, big data sets and uh, the challenges that you have encountered uh, during your research. Yeah, no, thank you. So, so I think there's some. Um there's some technical challenges, and that's around the acquisition of data, making sure that, uh, that what I call a creatinine really was a creatinine inside that hospital, that we map things to appropriate kinds of ranges, that the data themselves are complete. Those are sort of the technical challenges. I think sort of the bigger part um, that has me up at night is really the interpretational kinds of challenges, which is that um, although our methodology is more objective than, say, looking at diagnosis claims, nonetheless, there are still a number of subjective components to our definition. So, and, that, and you can see that throughout the entire array of the definition. So first of all, there's the question of the decision to draw blood cultures. Maybe we don't always draw blood cultures in every patient whom um, sepsis is present. And maybe there's some variation between clinicians and between hospitals and the predilection to do that. Number two, there's the decision to start antibiotics. Number three is the decision to continue antibiotics. And then on the organ dysfunction side, there's the challenge of determining what actually constitutes organ dysfunction knowing whether organ dysfunction is new or not, and then uh, making the attribution that organ dysfunction is due to infection. And of course, one can unpack lots of question marks around all those, uh, those questions. So what exactly constitutes organ dysfunction? So our rule was that you had to have a doubling of your, uh, your creatinine. Well, I mean, why, why doubling and not an increase by 50% or 150%? How do you take into account um, uh, different reasons why the creatinine might be elevated, right? If it's due to obstruction, uh, that might be unrelated to infection. If it's due to fluid, uh, fluid uh, hypovolemia, um, that's not due to infection. How do you take into account what the actual underlying cause might be? Um, how do you account for, for chronic underlying conditions? What if the patient has chronic kidney disease? It always runs a high creatinine um, but we tried as best we can to try to accommodate some of those factors by, uh, for example, looking at the patient's best creatinine over the course of hospitalization to try to work out what their best is. But some people, as we know, never return to their best even during hospitalization. We tried to exclude patients with diagnosis codes for, uh, for, for being on dialysis. Um, but then that, of course, uh, depends upon the, uh, the completeness of, uh, of, of coding for dialysis. It also precludes us from being able to use that as a criterion for sepsis detection in the, uh, in the, um, the end-stage renal disease population. So all these sort of subtleties come to bear as you try to, to unpack the, um, the application of an electronic definition. And then in terms of um, prospective versus retrospective, a lot of people may say uh, looking at the big databases is mostly retrospective and that we should have uh, prospective evaluations um, of uh, sepsis incidence and mortality. What would your response to them be? Uh, you know, I think that um, prospective evaluations, of course, are always ideal uh, to the extent that you can define all of the, the variables that you need in order to, to make your study complete. Um, I think when you're dealing with electronic health record data, you're in a special case, which is that um, because the data is being collected for clinical care and not for the purposes of, of, of research, um, that the decision to collect data is independent of, of our, our project. Um, so, the implication is that when you're looking at historical data, um, there's no worry, for, as in contrast to, say, a, say a, um, a recollection study or a chart, 
chart review analysis that there might have been incomplete documentation because we're looking at everything that's inside the Enterprise Health Record data. We can be pretty confident that if a blood culture was done, that it is pregnancy present. That's going to be true with both a retrospective and a prospective study. So by using electronic health record data, you, you overcome some of the limitation of retrospective analyses, which is that um, by looking at the entirety of the, the, the medical record and not just not the clinical notes, but rather the actual raw clinical data itself, you, you're likely to have complete ascertainment of that. The worry comes that there might be some clinical factors that are not being checked. So for example, we don't necessarily check LFTs in every single patient, but if an increase in bilirubin is one of our criteria for organist function for sepsis, then that can lead to, to, to um, an omission in missed cases. But if you think about it, that same problem is going to apply with a prospective study using the same methodology, unless you're somehow able to convert, um, not merely to, to do a prospective study using routine electronic health record data, but a prospective study where you've got all clinicians in all hospitals to agree to do all tests on all patients. And of course, that's a massive ask. So in this particular case, retrospective versus prospective, I think, for our methodology, probably does not make a big difference. But of course, the, the, the particular applications depend on exactly what you're studying and exactly what kind of data you need. I got you. And then you mentioned the importance of uh, lab tests and obtaining pharmacologic data, in uh, especially for calculating the surface score. Um, what happens if you have missing data? For example, patients don't have an ABG performed or they don't have a serum creatinine performed or for reasons that we don't know, they didn't re uh, report um, uh, didn't obtain a liver function test or, or liver test. How, how do you get around uh, that missing data? Yeah, so, so in big data in general, I mean, there are a number of potential cases, approaches you can take to this uh, the, this problem. Um, so you can use, first of all, the strategy of carrying forward the last known measured value or a, a value that's, that's taken proximally in, in time. You can use the strategy of multiple imputation which is to say that um, to use everything else you know about the patient to try to work out what their, their LFTs likely were on that particular, particular day based upon analysis of patterns in patients in whom you do have complete, uh, complete data. Those are two of the, sort of the major analytic strategies you can take to, uh, to missing data. Uh, in our particular study, um, if, say, for example, a patient's uh, LFTs were, were not measured, um, we could say that on clinical grounds, um, that's probably because there was no suspicion or no reason to suspect a clinical um, hepatitis. The patient did not appear jaundice, the patient had an alternative explanation for their clinical syndrome, and the patient was responding as, as, as expected to, to treatment. There was no reason to go looking beyond. And that means that, um, in other words, it's not missing at random. It's, it's, it's likely missing because probably clinically it was not pertinent. Now, of course, can we say that with absolute confidence? Is it possible that there are some patients out there that actually did have severe liver dysfunction and uh, we completely missed it? Absolutely. No, no, no question about it. That's a, that's a limitation of our, our methodology. But because, again, we, we're basing upon clinical decisions, um, this missing this not at random, I think, mitigates that, that, that problem to, uh, to some extent. The fact that stays in over here is that... Um, because sepsis is commonly defined as, in, as um, infection and any of a number of different organ dysfunctions, uh, you could argue that if we miss the hepatic dysfunction, we'll still pick up the patient because of their renal dysfunction or their thrombocytopenia or their need for presses or intubation, whatever the case may, may be. So we have that, that safety mechanism that's built into the actual sepsis definition um, uh, itself. 
I'll say that we, we did do some assessments of completeness um, of the, the data, and for the, uh, I would say the very common laboratory tests, um, things like a creatinine in particular, like a platelet, that's present really in just about everybody. It's really things like the LFTs where you start to get a, get a drop-off in, in total availability. I get you. Um, so your study that you published in JAMA this year was rather opportune because the sepsis three definitions came out last year, and, and in them, as you mentioned, they stressed the importance of organ dysfunction and caused by infection. Um, what would you say to researchers working outside of the United States who don't have access to big databases or electronic health records? How should they be interpreting um, their sepsis incidents and uh, outcomes um, if they don't have access to the data that you have? That's a, that's a great question. You know, the use of big data allowed us to do this for a large number of hospitals across a large number of years in, a, in an efficient manner. Um, but the conceptual idea underlying the approach is not specific to big data itself, but rather saying instead of asking a doctor, does this patient have sepsis or not, and therefore being dependent upon their, their familiarity definitions, their clinical intuition, their clinical perception as to what constitutes sepsis and what, what was not, rather look instead at the direct clinical indicators coming from the patient, him or herself. Um, so look instead of, of saying that the patient accepts or not, look as we did for what are the markers of this is suspected serious sustained infection? What are the clinical markers of organ dysfunction, rising creatinine, drop in platelets, rising bilirubin, et cetera? One, one could imagine setting up a surveillance system using those criteria, but applied in a, in a more manual fashion if, in fact, one wanted to be very uh, very deliberate about, uh, about, about this, this, this approach to surveillance. Great. And then uh, you mentioned the results of uh, your study published in JAMA. Uh, are there any other studies published in the last five years that you think have uh, really advanced our understanding of sepsis measurement? So I'd love, if I can, to uh, cite another paper by my colleague, uh, Dr. Ree. So, so Dr. Ree published another wonderful study where he um, tried to determine uh, different clinicians' perceptions and capacities to make the sepsis diagnosis. And uh, what he did was, was, uh, was really smart. He developed five clinical case vignettes and distributed them to uh, just under 100, I think 94 different critical care doctors from around, around the U.S. And he asked the doctors for each patient, does this individual have sepsis or not? And these vignettes were the kinds of things, kinds of scenarios that we all see all the time inside of our hospitals. Um, so let me give you some examples of some of the, the, the cases. So for example, um, a 67-year-old gentleman who says here ischemic cardiomyopathy and a low ejection fraction presents with a few days of shortness of breath, orthopnea, low extremity edema, fever, malaise, and productive cough. Has a bit of a fever, tachycardic, has a, um, a elevated respiratory rate, low oxygen saturation, looks at wet an exam, uh, white count's a bit high, Lactates two, creatinine a little bit up, chest X-ray shows some infiltrates. Patients are given some uh, some saline and some antibiotics, um, and uh, lo and behold, the patient's uh, blood pressure crashes, gets started on pressors, transferred to the ICU, um, gets put onto broad-spectrum antibiotics, and uh, slowly gets diuresed, and slowly with time, the patient improves. Now, we've all seen patients like that, right? It's, it's not an uncommon clinical clinical scenario. And the question was put to each of these 94 clinicians, um, does this patient have sepsis, septic shock, um, 
on nothing. And I'm not going to surprise you to hear that there was substantial disagreement. In fact, for most of the questions that, uh, most of the vignettes that Dr. Reed posed, uh, there was basically a 50-50 split between some people saying sepsis was present and other people saying sepsis was not. Now, we know what's driving that, right? It's about the, the subtleties around, well, was this patient in cardiogenic shock due to a low ejection fraction and, and volume administration? Or was this patient in septic shock due to infection-related hypotension? And, of course, very reasonable clinicians could disagree. But what was neat about that vignette and many others like it was it underscored that at the end of the day, we, we can't know with certainty, and certainly not with uh, with, with unity, um, who does and does not have sepsis. So what I loved about Dr. Ree's study was that he helped to to bring to the forefront the the, the subtlety and the unclarity about knowing at the end of the day who does have sepsis and who does not. And I think that has important implications for us with clinical care because at the point of punch, you have to make that decision about whether to give antibiotics or not, and about uh, surveillance, because any time we try to estimate sepsis rates, um, at the back of our minds, we have to appreciate that somebody in the front lines had to make a qualitative call as to whether sepsis was present or not. And a very reasonable doctor standing right next to that one might have made a completely different decision. Well, I think, yeah, China's work definitely makes uh, one uh, pause and, and consider the, the discrepancies amongst the positions. Um, and then what, what would you say are the biggest controversies in sepsis measurement at the moment? Um, I think that um, the biggest controversy, I think, is obviously around uh, around definition. Um, and the, the point over there is that um, conceptually, I think we all agree uh, that um, that sepsis is infection with uh, with organ dysfunction that's associated with bad outcomes, but practically speaking, operationalizing that um, is very difficult for all the reasons that we've spoken about today, including um, the difficulty of knowing who actually does or does not have an infection. Right, we're only able to confirm that about half the time. Particularly um, knowing what constitutes organ dysfunction, disentangling new organ dysfunction from pre-existing organ organ dysfunction and knowing whether organ dysfunction actually was due to infection or not. And if it was due to infection, was it directly due to infection, you know, due to so-called you know, foul fumors that, that emanate from the, the infection, or due to secondary factors like uh, volume depletion, what have you, that might that accompany so many, so many infections. So that's, that, I think, is the biggest uh, controversy and difficulty in terms of, uh, of sepsis surveillance. It's just knowing who, who has a condition and who does not. And then in terms of uh, sepsis uh, endotypes or phenotypes or uh, subgroups, um, what are your thoughts uh, in terms of us needing to research them and uh, the implications of that research? Yeah, no, I think it is an important uh, question. I mean, I mean, I think that one of the trends over the years, actually, as we said over the, the beginning of this, uh, this discussion, was that in the old days what we used to call pneumonia and uh, urinary tract infection and uh, bad cellulitis, nowadays we call them sepsis. So what we've done in practice is we've lumped together um, some very different conditions under a common label, and uh, we're being encouraged by we are being encouraged by um, by regulatory um, streams to to treat them in a common fashion. Um, but of course we know that these are very different disorders, um, and of course they manifest very differently depending upon uh, various host factors. You know, a young, healthy person versus an old, immunocompromised person, um, and that. 
probably one size fits all is probably not appropriate. So I think there's some work for us to do to help us um, be mindful of sepsis and yet um, disentangle the particularities about any given patient or a sepsis phenotype so we can customize our treatment and so we can optimize our research to, to best speak to the different kinds of kind of scenarios that, that we as clinicians have to deal with. I get you. And then in terms of uh, sepsis uh, measurement advances, uh, what do you think is going to happen in the next three to five years in clinical management? In clinical management? Uh, or in terms of, of, of strategies for, for surveillance? Sorry, uh, strategies for surveillance. Yeah. I think the big thing is that um, we're going to see more and more use of uh, big data, of electronic health data, of clinical data to accomplish sepsis um, surveillance. I think that um, studies like the one we described today, as well as um, many other people who've done the thoughtful um, analyses, uh, critiques of the, uh, of the limitations of claims data, it basically revealed to us that it's just not a, a credible strategy for longitudinal surveillance of incidents or of outcomes. And therefore, I think we're going to see more of a shifting towards using um, electronic clinical methods, like the one that, 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 we, uh, that we use for our paper, um, that will become more and more the, uh, the, the, the norm. Great. Well, I uh, certainly applaud both uh, you and uh, Dr. Chanari for your outstanding work and for really helping us to uh, make uh, big advances in uh, sepsis measurement. Um, to close off, I just want to ask you um, if you could maybe share with us uh, three top polls that you would want to impart to fellows and junior faculty uh, who are pursuing a career in critical care medicine? Sure. Um, well, I'm going to keep it uh, a little bit on the, the topic of, uh, of sepsis to keep in line with the discussion of the, uh, the, the day. And I'd say that uh, my message number one is that sepsis is an elusive entity to define, and therefore be humble. Um, be prepared to second-guess your initial impression, and don't be ashamed of that. Be proud of that. Uh, number two is customize your care to your particular patient. And so I'd say that um, early antibiotics um, are critical for shock, but the data, I think, suggests that it's less critical for sepsis without shock. And uh, therefore, if you're certain your patient is infected, go ahead and treat right away. It doesn't matter if they're septic or septic shock or not. Um, if you know the patient has infection, treat them. If you're on the borderline and the patient has septic shock, go ahead and treat right away because you don't have any margin for potential error. But if you think your patient has sepsis without shock and you're unsure if they're infected or not, I would say take the time to gather more diagnostic information to try to make a better determination so you don't willy-lilly expose your patient to antibiotics or to fluids that might not be appropriate for that individual. And my third message, um, as an infectious disease consultant who uh, sees many patients in the ICU with persistent, quote-unquote, septic shock, is that um, more antibiotics is rarely, if ever, the solution to a persistent septic shock. Um, but rather, you almost certainly have a problem with poor source control or something else that's just driving the ongoing um, septic shock syndrome, such as a bowel perforation or pancreatitis or adrenal insufficiency or so on and so forth. So if your patient whom you know or suspect it's infection, is on broad-spectrum antibiotics, and uh, yeah, these are quite more and more pressors, or you can't wean the pressors, don't just switch, don't, don't just add more antibiotics. Rather, try to think what's driving the process, do the appropriate imaging, try to get the underlying source of the problem. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, Mike. A big thank you to Dr. Mike Klompas. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.